Section 11 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia. The Age of Plain Song. From the point of view of the musical historian, the dominant note of civilization at the opening of the Christian era was the all-pervading influence of Hellenistic culture. It is well to remember, however, that this influence was more in form than in content. Greek art was no longer the pure, bright flame that lighted the world so gloriously in the age of Pericles. Its blaze had become dull and lifeless. Elements foreign to the fuel that had fed it in the classic age had been brought to it by the softly sensuous fingers of the Orient and the rough, unsympathetic hands of Rome. Hellenic art at the opening of the Christian era resembled that of Periclean Athens as little as the pseudo-classic architecture of the Italian Renaissance resembled the crowning glories of the Acropolis. The serene, clear, intellectual aestheticism of Greece had degenerated into the coarse sensuality of the pagan Latins and the sterile dilettantism of the theistic peoples of the Orient. Neither Latins nor Orientals were at all capable of understanding or assimilating it. Its joyous, essentially Aryan paganism was as foreign to the Semitic temperament as its lucid intellectuality was impossible to the turgid Roman mind. We have then, at the beginning of the Christian era, a veneer of Greek culture covering a gross materialism in the West and a decadent mystic symbolism in the East. Into this situation was born the new cult, with its utter negation of everything the ancient world, pagan or theistic, held precious. Christianity, from the beginning, was at war with its environment, Greek, Roman and Hebraic. Though its roots lay in Jewish philosophy, its pessimistic attitude toward the world, its view of life as an evil, poisoned condition, was directly opposed to the spirit of a people with whom, as Renan says, the evils of life were never chronic complaints. Pour qui le mot de la vie ne devient pas de maladie chronique. Its opposition to all the teachings and practices of paganism was, of course, absolute and uncompromising. Nevertheless, Christianity absorbed from its environment the material of its ritual as inevitably as the tree draws nurture from the soil and atmosphere that underlies and surrounds it. That it absorbed those elements unconsciously, even unwillingly, goes a long way to explain our ignorance of the manner in which the liturgical music of the church developed. It seems practically certain that among the most devout early Christians, music was looked upon with suspicion, and its use, especially in connection with the worship of God, was probably discouraged as far as possible. Even as late as the 4th century, we find a Syrian monk warning one of his brethren that we should approach God with sighs and tears, with reverence and humility, and not with song. When, through the inevitable pressure of environment, music had become an integral part of the Christian ritual, the church fathers, with characteristic naivete, completely ignored the source from which it was drawn and in what is obviously simple faith attributed to it a divine origin our singing says st john chrysostom is only an echo 
an imitation of that of the angels. Music was invented in heaven. Around and above us sing the angels. If man is musical, it is by a revelation of the Holy Ghost. The singer is inspired from on high. St. Athanasius, St. Ambrose, Justin Martyr, St. Basil, St. Benedict, and other early fathers talk in the same strain. John de Muris, more historical and less mystical, can find no more definite origin for liturgical music than a vague tradition. With those who were practically eyewitnesses to the growth of early church music, so serenely blind to the influences that determined its course, the task of the modern historian in reconstructing those influences becomes practically impossible. If, however, we understand clearly the conditions under which liturgical music took shape, we can formulate a theoretical sketch of its history, which is probably not far from the truth. In this connection, it will help us considerably if we remember that during the early centuries of the Christian era, the Roman Church was far from being the dominant and unifying factor which it later became, and that the great institution, to which we are wont to refer simply as the Church, resulted from the confluence of many independent streams, and not from the expansion of any single one. These streams were divided, so to speak, between two main watersheds, one of which was Asia Minor and the other Italy. In Asia Minor, the church was surrounded by a Semitic civilization, shot through with Hellenic elements. In Italy, it grew up in an environment of Greco-Roman culture. It might be well to take a glance here at the state of music in Rome at the beginning of the Christian era. Roman music, previous to the conquest of Greece, 146 BC, had borrowed its forms from the Etruscans and the Greeks. Etruscan influences were probably predominant in the early centuries of the Republic. The nature of these influences is not known to us. It would seem that the Etruscans were originally a Greek race, and the fountainhead of their musical art was consequently Hellenic. But they were, as their vases show, a race dowered with artistic ideals and genuine creative impulses, and they must have modelled their musical inheritance into something new, characteristic and beautiful. But if we are to believe Dionysius, Strabo, and other Roman writers who have touched on the subject, we must conclude that the Romans merely imitated such music of the Etruscans as was useful for religious and military purposes, choosing, presumably, the cruder forms of the art. We may accept this conclusion all the more readily since we know that the Romans, even down to imperial times, remained obtuse and obtrusive Philistines. It does not seem that the Romans borrowed much directly from Greece until after Greece became a Roman province. They were not, in fact, interested at all in art. But after repeated conquests had made them rich and luxurious, they began to cultivate, or rather patronise, art as a sort of fashionable and expensive luxury. The result was a gradual growth among the leisure classes in Rome, of a very real literary and aesthetic taste. By the time of Augustus, Rome was able to produce such excellent imitators of Greek models as Virgil, Horace, Ovid, and Catullus. In music, however, the imperial people never rose so high. Hellenic music had already degenerated when Rome fell under its influence. Besides pantomime with chorus, says Gevert, 
Greek musicians brought to Rome only the instrumental solo and the song with kithara or lyre accompaniment. This branch of the art flourished apace in Rome, where, however, like Italian opera in later centuries, it became distorted into a craze for meaningless virtuosity. We know less about the music itself than we know about the famous kithara players who were the favourites of emperors and were accorded the honours and dignity of princes. History speaks to us about Tigellius, the friend of Augustus, and Misomedes of Crete, the intimate of Hadrian. Nero gained a humorous immortality by his pretensions as a singer and kithara player. The story of his journey through Greece, where he won the kithara prize at the Olympic Games and defeated in public competition the most famous performers in every city he visited, is surely one of the most ludicrous narratives in all history. Until the 3rd century AD, the Kitharedic chant was purely Hellenic, as we might surmise from the names of its most famous exponents, such as Terpnos, Menecrates, Diodorus, Chrysogenes, Polion, Echion, and Glaphyros. In the 2nd century, Ptolemy, writing his harmonics, founded his system of tones and modes on the practice of the Kithra and lyre players. Practically all of the pieces which have come down to us from the Greco-Roman period, and which we have noted in the last chapter, belong to the literature of the Kithara. The Kitharedic chants were narratives in the style of Timotheus, or lyrics chiefly hymns to some divinity. These compositions were not in strophic form. The melody was divided into sections of unequal length, comata, and varied more or less from one end of the poem to the other. Until the beginning of the 4th century, the texts were usually in Greek. The Latin Kitharedic songs, such as those of Horace and Catullus, were scarcely heard except at banquets and private reunions. Greek was, indeed, the prevailing musical language, as we may learn from Vitruvius, who prefaces to the chapter on music in his work on architecture a warning that musical theory is practically a sealed book to those who do not know Greek. After the removal of the seat of empire to Byzantium in 330 AD, the use of Greek disappeared, and with it the use of musical notation by means of Greek letters. The transmission of music then became oral, and the art of the Kithara song and its accompaniments gradually vanished. Now the founders of Christianity were Jews, and Oriental influences were never absent from the church, even in Rome. Furthermore, the apostles of Christianity in Rome were humble, untutored men, and the majority of their converts were drawn from the same class, the class which in all ages has naturally taken refuge in any creed which contradicts the views and practices of its masters and oppressors. Christ's message of hope to the humble in spirit came home first to the humble in material possessions. Deposuit potentes de sede et exaltavit humiles. For three centuries the Christians in Italy were subjected to constant oppression and often to fiercely violent persecution. Their rites were performed in dark and secret places, and presumably without any noise that could be avoided. Under the circumstances one is tempted to conclude that music was severely ignored by the first Christians in Rome. They had every reason to avoid it. It was likely to attract undesirable attention. It was associated primarily, in their minds, with the sensual orgies of their pagan oppressors, 
and finally the first christians themselves were not of the class likely to possess much musical culture nevertheless it is practically certain that they intoned some of their services in a simple discreet way they must have chanted their psalms at least probably as the hebrews did this chant it would perhaps be safe to assume was responsorial and consisted of a low more or less monotonous recitative by the time the edict of milan 313 a.d struck off the fetters that bound christianity the church had already gathered to her bosom many of the most influential and cultured roman citizens their advent must have changed gradually the whole complexion of the roman church with their cultivated taste for art they probably furnished the prime impulse towards the aestheticism which gradually came to be a distinguishing feature of the church ritual after the edict of milan the church jumped almost at a bound to a position of social and political influence which soon became one of social and political predominance the most influential of its members no longer came from the lowly and oppressed but from the rich and powerful every reason that had operated against the use of music in the primitive church had disappeared and with it had disappeared for a time the oriental tendencies which the founders of the church had consciously or unconsciously incorporated with it there is little doubt that during the third and fourth centuries greco-roman culture penetrated to the innermost shrine of western christianity and remained an active agent in the formulation of liturgical music long after the orient had again become a predominant influence through the removal of the seat of empire to byzantium it is unfortunately not within our power to indicate the point at which the greco-roman kithoridic chant began to influence christian religious music nor do the relative proportions of a general history permit us to study the question here however it is sufficient for us to know that the kithoridic chant was the direct ancestor of the christian hymnody in the west among various kinds of pieces of which the roman antiphonary is composed says givert none is known by literary documents to be so old as the strophic hymnody from the musical point of view it marks the transition from the vocal melopoeia of antiquity to the liturgical chant properly so called we find this transition fully accomplished in the hymns of saint ambrose died 397 who is unquestionably the most striking and influential figure in early liturgical music Gewirt aptly calls him the Turpander of Western Christianity. His works are full of reference to music, many of which are naively charming. For example, he writes, The angels praise the Lord, the powers of heaven sing psalms unto him, and even before the very beginning of the world, the cherubim and seraphim sang with sweet voice, Holy, holy, holy he mentions the music of the spheres and recalls that it has been said the axle of heaven itself turned with a perpetual sweet sound that might be heard in the uttermost parts of the earth where there are certain secrets of nature that the wild beasts and birds might be soothed with the delight of voices blending even more practical he points out that those things we wish well to remember we are accustomed to sing for that which is sung stays the better in our memories his hymns produced a great effect upon St. Augustine, who wrote of them in his Confessions in terms almost extravagant, 
and a whole century later cassiodorus constantly cites st ambrose and bears witness to the wide and everlasting nature of his influence on christian hymnody six hymns which have come down to us are attributed with certainty to this gifted saint they are one deus creator omnium two iam surget ora tertia three eterne rerum conditor four veni redemptor gentium five eluxit orbi iam dies and six bis ternas horas explicans probably also he was the author of o lux beata trinitas hic est dies versus dei splendor paternae gloriae and aterna christine munera the melodic forms of these hymns are borrowed directly from the greeks and romans stripped of their melismas their primitive contours are easily recognizable and their structure is thoroughly in accord with the modal theory of the classic greeks all of these hymns which seem to be the most ancient belong to one of the principal cytheridic modes the dorian iastian or aeolian the ambrosian hymns in the dorian mode have the same melodic texture as the hymn to helios and the main part of the song to the muse hymns after the manner of ambrose in the iastian and aeolian modes are frequent in the catholic hymnody the greco-roman complexion of the ambrosian hymns is still further evident in their metrical form the old ecclesiastical hymns composed in iambic diameters and ascribed to bishop ambrose says riemann are still firmly founded upon the antique art as they respect absolutely the quantity of the syllables and introduce long syllables and short ones only where it is in accordance with the laws of classic poetry the eight-syllable iambi of the ambrosian verse became extremely popular in ecclesiastical hymnody and the breviary as it is today contains many hymns in that measure but this was not the only metrical form of classic rome that became incorporated in the liturgy of the church vanantius fortunatus in the sixth century introduced the trochaic tetrameter which was a favourite popular verse among the ancient romans and still survives in the rhythm of the roman saltarello and the neapolitan tarantella the elegant sapphic strophe so dear to latin lyricists made its appearance subsequent to the carlovingian epoch as long as latin prosody remained dominant the ecclesiastical hymns were more or less metrical but as literary latin passed into desuetude these chants lost their isochronous rhythm at the beginning of the eighth century the vogue of metrical verse had already passed with it passed too the classic melopoeia which had gradually become enriched by accessory inflections there was quite a large school of hymn writers in the ambrosian style among whom may be mentioned especially saint augustine three hundred fifty to four hundred thirty saint paulinus of nola circa four hundred thirty one the spanish poet prudentius fourth century sir julius fifth century enodius and venantius fortunatus sixth century the style spread rapidly from milan into different western provinces of the roman empire a text of the time of sidonius apollinaris 
second half of the fifth century, tells us that at the feast of Christmas, all the churches of Gaul and Italy resounded to the hymn Veni Creator Gentium, and Rabanus Maurus, bishop of Mayence, in the middle of the ninth century, tells us that the Ambrosian hymns were then in use in all the churches of the West. Further proof of their wide prevalence is furnished by the rules of St. Benedict and Aurelian of Arles, first half of 6th century. For many centuries, however, they were frowned upon by Rome. The Council of Braga, 563, expressly excluded from the divine office all chants in verse and all texts not taken from the sacred scriptures. Three centuries later, the deacon Amalarius, charged by Louis the Pious with regulating the chants of the office for all the churches of the Frankish Empire, leaves hymns completely aside in conformity with the usage of Rome at that time. In fact, the local rite of Rome had not yet welcomed hymns as late as the beginning of the 12th century. Priority is given to the Ambrosian hymns in this discussion, not because they are the most ancient forms of liturgical chant, but because they form the most easily demarkable point of transition, from Greco-Roman music to Christian ecclesiastical music. The most ancient forms of the liturgy undoubtedly had their genesis in the Orient. There, of course, the influence of Greek music was also active, though to what extent it affected the Hebrew traditions we cannot even surmise. We find, too, the vogue of the Kithuridic chant even greater among the Roman citizens of the Orient than among the inhabitants of Italy. The former carried their passion for this form of expression to the extent of engraving the songs with their melodies on funeral monuments. It may again be remarked, however, that the first Christians were not of the class likely to be influenced easily by extraneous culture. Acquainted with foreign music, they undoubtedly were. The apostles, for instance, speak of the Greek zither as a familiar instrument, but this acquaintance was in all probability superficial. Humble and uneducated for the most part, those pioneers of a new cult were of the sort with whom custom and tradition die hard. They were reared in the atmosphere of the synagogue, and it must be remembered that they were not iconoclasts of the Hebrew faith, but rather professed reformers and purifiers of it. The Temple of Solomon, the Ark of the Covenant, the Patriarchs and Prophets were subjects as sacred to them as they were to older generations of the children of Israel. Their quarrel was not with the Jews, but with such Jews as refused to recognize their new king. While, therefore, they had every reason for avoiding the music of the pagan Greeks and Romans, they had no reason whatever for abandoning that which had been handed down to them from David. They certainly took over the texts of the Old Testament psalmody, and it is a natural assumption that with them they adopted the music to which these texts were sung. We may conjecture with some plausibility that the psalmodic solo, responsorial chant, and antiphonal chant, all ancient Hebrew liturgical forms, passed directly from the temple and synagogue into the first Christian communities, with such minor changes as may have been necessitated by the new ritual, and attendant upon the transference of its conduct from trained cantors to untrained laymen. The psalmodic solo has no special significance in the development of the Christian liturgy. Of more importance is the responsorial chant, 
which consists of a solo interrupted periodically by the voice of the people. Footnote. A typical example is the recurrence of the phrase quaniam in eternum misericordia eius in the 135th psalm. End of footnote. It is very probable that this form of psalmody was in use among the first Christians, though we have no direct evidence on the point. We learn, however, from church historians that psalms were sung in this fashion in Alexandria in the time of Bishop Athanasius in the early part of the 4th century. The antiphonal chant, which is the most interesting and important of liturgical forms, is of extreme antiquity. David, we know, divided the singers of the temple into two choirs. Whether this form passed directly and without interruption from the temple and synagogue into the religious services of the first Christians, we have no means of knowing. It was, however, adopted at a very early date by Christian communities in the Orient. Eusebius, bishop of Caesarea, 3rd century, reproduces a text of Philo, in which occurs the following description. Suddenly all rose on both sides, and formed two choirs, men and women. Each choir chose its choriphae and soloist. Then they sang to God hymns of different melodies and metres, sometimes together and sometimes answering each other in suitable manner. As showing the early expansion of this style of singing throughout the Christian world, we may quote from a letter of St. Basil, 4th century, to the inhabitants of Nova Caesarea. The people rise in the night, he writes, and go to the house of prayer. When they have prayed, they pass to the psalms. Sometimes they divide into two alternate parts, sometimes a soloist sings and all answer, and having thus passed the night in diverse psalms, they intone all together as one voice and one heart, the penitential psalm. If it is for this reason, the organization of the psalmody, you wish to separate from me, you must also separate from the Egyptians and Libyans, from the inhabitants of Thebes, Palestine, Arabia, Phoenicia, Syria, and the banks of the Euphrates. In a word, from all those who hold in honor vigils and psalms performed in common. It may be remarked that the antiphon originally was merely the alternate singing of two choirs. Later it came to mean the solo refrain intoned by the high priest before the biblical psalm or canticle and repeated by the choir when the psalm or canticle was finished. According to the rules of St. Benedict, this solo refrain was intended to give, in ponere, the melody to the singers. Musically, says Gewert, it forms the introduction and finale of the psalmodic chant to which it is bound by a community of mode. It probably took the place of an earlier instrumental introduction and finale, as, for some reason, or reasons upon which it is idle to speculate, instruments were excluded from the services of the primitive church. It was in the monasteries of the east, of Syria and Egypt, that the forms of the liturgy first began to take shape and in Antioch and Alexandria there developed schools of singing which were to the Greek churches of the East what the Scola Cantorum was to the Latin churches of the 7th and 8th centuries. In the 4th century, as we may gather from the canons of the Council of Laodicea, they had already trained singers in the churches of Syria, and St. Augustine speaks of the singing of St. Athanasius as if the latter must have had careful schooling in the art. Sylvia, the Gallic pilgrim, 
mentions the singing of antiphons and psalms in the church at Alexandria, 385-388. to In the 5th century, as we learn from a letter of Sidonius Apollinaris, Syrian cantors were used in Italian churches. The prejudice against pagan music, which must have excluded all Greek or Greco-Roman influences from the Christian services of apostolic times, proved hard to kill. We find it cropping out even in Clement of Alexandria, who admits only modest and decent harmonies, and excludes harmonies that are chromatic and light, such as are used in the lascivious orgies of courtesans. By that time, however, the prejudice apparently had become discriminating. The extraordinary popularity of the Kitharidic songs was bound to have its influence. The heresiarchs were not slow to recognise the hold of profane melodies on the people, and composed dogmatic chants to the melodies of popular songs, much in the manner of the Salvation Army of our day. Arius, for instance, the great heresiarch, who was condemned by the Council of Nicaea, 325, reproduced in his Talia the lascivious musical forms of the Ionian Sotades, to the great scandal of Athanasius. Saint Ephraim, 320-379, adopting the same idea, turned the Syrians from the songs of Harmonius by writing hymns in the Syrian language on the same melodies, and Gregory of Nazianza, 328-389, composed canticles to take the place of the heretodox psalms of the Apollinarists. While probably there was never any break in the communication between the churches of the East and those of the West, it is likely that they developed their liturgical forms more or less independently until about the middle of the 4th century. Then the floodgates of Oriental influence seem to have been opened by St. Hilarius and St. Ambrose. The former, who was Bishop of Poitiers, is said to have introduced into his church the antiphonal and other forms of psalmody, then practised in the churches of Asia, where he had lived in exile for four years. 356 to 360. He is supposed to have introduced the Syrian hymnody into the Western Church. Hymnorum Carmine Floroit Primus, Isidore of Seville said of him. He is credited with having been the pioneer of the metrical style of hymn known as Ambrosian, though the three hymns from his pen which have been preserved hardly bear out this contention. They are crude in rhythm, and not likely to have served as models for the cultured Ambrose. From all available evidence, one is impelled to award to St. Ambrose the honour of having first introduced antiphonal psalmody to the West. Indeed, there is little doubt that he was a real founder of the Latin chant in general. Ecclesiastical songs, as we have already seen, had already developed, both in the East and the West, to something like a formal art. But Ambrose seems to have been the first to gather together the various elements composing it and lay the foundations of a strictly ordered liturgy. From Milan, the antiphonal psalmody spread through all the churches of the West. Even Rome, which until the 12th century excluded the Ambrosian hymns, adopted antiphonal psalmody in the time of Pope Celestine I, 422 to 432. Footnote, according to some musical historians, Celestine introduced the antiphonal psalmody from Poitiers. End of footnote. It is to Rome that one must look for the subsequent development of the liturgical song. 
though until the time of the Great Schism, the formative influences were more Byzantine than Latin. St. Leo the Great, 440-461, to established in the immediate vicinity of the Basilica of St. Peter, a monastic community especially entrusted with the service of the canonical hours, under the patronage of Saints John and Paul, and this was followed in the second half of the 7th century by the community of St. Martin, and under Gregory III, 731-741, to by that of St. Stephen. End of section 11